There's a certain twist to the way people in Paris are stylish. Parisians love small luxuries, you know, luxuries that they can afford, and luxuries that will separate them from the masses. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Paris-based wine expert Olivier Manier joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves for a witty insider's look at the personality of the typical Parisian. His book, Stuff Parisians Like, pokes gentle fun at his fellow Parisians, gives tips for visitors on blending in, and even adds a dash of French philosophy. But if the pressures of city life get on your nerves, you can always do like the French do and take a leisurely vacation on an inland canal barge. It's hard to imagine a more relaxing way to enjoy the scenery of rural France. Just pull over the side, pull a line out, and get a bottle of wine and sit on the front deck. It's a floating hotel restaurant. Learn how to relax like a Frenchman and act like a Parisian. Today on Travel with Rick Steves. You don't need to be an experienced sailor to pilot yourself along the slow-moving canals of rural France. Just about anyone can enjoy drifting through the French countryside aboard a live-in boat, visiting wineries and fancy chateaux all along the route. We'll explore the casual art of canal barging in France in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. But if you're heading into town and want to do like the Parisians when you're in Paris, then Olivier Manier is your guy. He's born and bred in Paris, and he operates a boutique wine bar in the center of town. Olivier joins us now to help us comprehend what makes his fellow Parisians tick and also what ticks him off. His book, Stuff Parisians Like, was a hit in France, and it's now available in English. And he doesn't mince words when talking about the quirks of his fellow Parisians. Let's just say that his sense of humor comes seasoned with more than a dash of fleur de sel. We're at 877-333-7425 as Olivier Manier joins us from his second home city of New Orleans to help us learn about the stuff Parisians like. Olivier, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Why do you choose to make Paris your home? Well, it's not much of a choice, really. I was born there, so were my parents. My four grandparents have spent their entire lifetime in Paris. So I guess I qualify as a as a full-on Parisian, born and raised. It is such a, a gorgeous city. I, I feel really lucky to have been born and have grown up in this city. I understand this book, which is newly available in English, was a bestseller in French before you took it out in English. Yeah, that is correct. I, I was tremendously lucky with the French version of the book. People, the press raved about it, and it became really popular. And it was really unexpected for me because my... Uh, my first profession is not being an author, it's really wine. So so it's just a second career for me. And uh, yeah, the, the book in English is an extremely exciting development. Yeah, now people can learn about your wine work at your website, o-chateau.com. But right now we're talking about stuff Parisians like. It's just so fun to, to read through this book and develop sort of a, a joy of all the, the quirky little differences. The French people, for instance, or at least the Parisians, love the word petite. Well... <laughs> Parisians are exquisitely delicate people, aren't they? No, ser- seriously. Indulging for, for Parisians is something that is um, you know, it's pretty hard to do. So whenever something pleasurable is mentioned in a conversation, they sort of have to use the word petite with it. In Paris, like you don't have a drink, you have a petite drink. Uh, you don't go away for a weekend, you go away for a petite weekend. Uh, you hear the word petite in every other sentence. Well, to the point really where now it's become vastly rational. You know, like if, you, if you're going to pay with your credit card... You won't be asked for your signature. You're going to be asked for une petite signature, s'il vous plaît. Huh. So the uh, the beginner in, in the French language would think a, a small drink or a small signature, but it's not that at all. It's just a give me a give me a, a sweet signature. Exactly. Yeah. It's you want to to temper things. You know, big is a, is not something that is uh, valued too highly in, in France. Uh, we prefer things that are a bit more small. Excess is is vulgar. So. Um, Parisians shall not indulge. You know, they they never go all the way. Uh, let's say. So the opposite of petite would be an insult. Then what's the opposite of petite? It might be gros. Yeah. So it's something that is a bit more crass. You know. So it's it's about you know containing yourself when you want to be a Parisian. Um, you never order that second bottle of wine. You know, excess is not safe, and Parisians like it pretty safe. When a tourist goes to Paris, it just feels like a lot of people are complaining. Do you get that take as a Parisian that, that just people are, are just unsatisfied in general? Or wh- why do they complain so much? <laughs> yeah, that is very true. It annoys even Parisians. But, you know, in Paris, I'd say that enthusiasm is considered a mild form of retardation. You know, if you're happy, <laughs> 
you must be stupid somehow. And on the other hand, if you complain, well, you must be smart. You know, there's a, there's a very beautiful Parisian syllogism here, uh, which is at hand, which is basically that the person who complains is the person who spotted the problem. The person who spotted the problem is the smart person, and therefore necessarily the person who complains is the smart person. It's pretty foolproof, really. That puts an American in a bad light because a lot of us are going there just saying, thank you very much, everything is so beautiful, oh, wow, we're, we're smiling. They kind of look at us like the village idiot. <laughs> well, there's some truth to that. You know, like Parisians have, have a very unique uh, relationship to Americans. And their initial re reaction, whenever you talk about les Américains, you know, in a sentence in, in Paris, the immediate thing you get is, well, but they're all stupid. If I manage to explain, you know, that in what is probably the most creative, the most successful country in the world, you know, there has to be a few smart people at least. Then Parisians like to pull out the, the culture card, you know, like they're all certain that Americans are completely devoid of culture. So it's pretty fascinating, actually, to notice that aspect of French culture these days. Like, they all watch American movies, they use American words, they wear American clothes, they um, listen to American music, eat American food, and yet they are absolutely convinced that American culture does not exist. You know, Americans to the Persians are fat, they're stupid, they're ugly, period. That's the <laughs> end of the story. And then they think this, you know, and then they go home and sit on their couch and watch Sex and the City or a DVD of Woody Allen. So, And if you object and you say, well, you know, Woody Allen is uh, American. He's like, no, he's not American. He's from New York. You know? So they're pretty hard to beat, these Parisians. You know, I, I'm always impressed by how in the United States we have this kind of a smiley face culture. It's just, you know, people have to say, have a good day. And uh, it, it must come off as a little bit superficial to Parisians because they're not a smiley face kind of people. No, to say the least, no, they're not. I think it's something extremely pleasurable when you actually come to the U.S., even for French people, to see that there's another way to be that is possible. You know, you can be smiley, you can be positive, as opposed to being a bit defensive and frowning all the time. So actually, it's something that I absolutely adore about the American culture, that, that positive outlook on things. Sur les du vieux Paris, le long de la Seine, le bonheur sourit. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Olivier Manier. And Olivier's new book is Stuff Parisians Like. You can learn more about Olivier's work at his website, o-chateau.com. Olivier, a lot of Americans have a kind of a love-hate relationship with Parisian waiters. What do the Parisians think about their own waiters? <laughs> well, truthfully, I would say that Parisians truly dislike Parisian waiters, you know, just like uh, they dislike Parisian taxi drivers. Parisians find their waiters pretty rude. What happens in, in your typical Parisian restaurant is a fantastic whirlwind of passive aggression. You know, like clients and waiters don't really think much of one another. <laughs> so tensions silently add up and usually poor service uh, tends to ensue. <laughs> wow. So the waiters don't think much of their clients and the clients don't think much of the waiters. And, uh, nope. But everybody has a little veneer of sort of uh, decency. Yeah, ish. You know, but a lot of, um, of French people, a lot of Parisians actually, all refer to service in America as being so great. And so they all wish that Parisian waiters were a bit more like American waiters. Ah, so Parisians appreciate American-style service. They very much do. Where the, where the customer is king. Yet they are not quite prepared to pay the same amount in tips. <laughs> and running a wine bar, I can tell you this firsthand. So Parisians under tip, and they complain about the waiters, and they like the whole notion that the customer is king. I, I know when you go shopping as an American in Paris, you kind of think, hello, I was taught the customer is king, but you're treating me like dirt here. Yeah, well, it's part of that whole non-tipping culture. I would say that it won't bring anything more to the person attending to you to uh, give you good service. So they don't necessarily go the extra mile for you. But reversely, because a lot of, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of Americans, when they travel to Paris, they expect that since they pay, they should get something. And it's not at all how it works in Paris. In Paris, it's more if you're nice, if you're polite, then you're going to get something. Money is extremely secondary because those waiters and the staff in front of you, basically, they don't get the money you're spending. So it doesn't make a difference for them. While if you're being nice, that they get right away. Okay, so the best way to tip is to be a joy to serve. 
basically, and then you're going to get good service uh, because it's pretty rare for Parisians to be a joy to serve anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be a remarkable customer. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Olivier Mani about stuff Parisians like. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Neil's on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Neil, thanks for your call. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, what are your thoughts on waiters in Paris? Well, I, I, I read Olivier's book, and I liked it a lot. I, I did see the uh, chapter on waiters and read it right after I had a, uh, a terrific experience with one. I was sitting on the Place de Vosges at a sidewalk cafe, and through a little scam, a couple of uh, young boys grabbed the iPhone off my table and disappeared into the Place de Vosges. They didn't exactly disappear. I could see them through the fence, and I stood up. I couldn't leave because I had my camera bag and other things there. I couldn't go chasing off after them. But my waiter saw me uh, stand up and immediately came over and did a, I suppose, Gallic shrug, except uh, this shrug, you know, what can I do to to help? And I said, they stole my, my phone. And he he quickly patted his uh, shirt and his pants and realized he had his keys and took a few steps away, jumped onto his motorcycle, uh, sped down the street, sped to the far side of the uh, Place de Vosges and confronted the two young boys as they were coming out the other side, pointed at them and said, come here and hand me the phone. They handed him the phone. He jumped back on his bike yeah. and sped back to the cafe. So, so my experience with the uh, French waiter uh, in that particular scenario was certainly... That was a French superhero. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was just one of those scenes that you couldn't have scripted, um, but it was, it was lovely. And, and I do agree. If you're in July on the Champs-Élysées, and yeah, there's going to be waiters who are, are not particularly happy to be there. But uh, uh-huh. I've had... Uh, good and bad experiences, and, you know, you try not to stereotype them. But, Neil, you know, I suspect that this waiter was not fully Parisian because <laughs> you describe him as as having a little bit of testosterone in him, which is rather un-Parisian. <laughs> Neil, you, you talked about he gave you a, a Gallic shrug, and normally I think that means just, like, well, deal with it yourself, yes. you know. But this was a different kind of Gallic shrug. And I was expecting the one you were referring to, which is a, <laughs> eh, so what? And uh, instead it was a, I don't understand what's happening. Oh. And uh, he, he uh, quickly came to my defense, came to my assistance, and retrieved the uh, very valuable iPhone in that nice. particular scenario. So, well, that, that's encouraging, Neil. <laughs> it, uh, it, it is. And, uh, you know, I've experienced good ones and, uh, and bad ones and just always learn something from them. And I think they take service seriously. I think they're, they're very conscious of, uh, of wanting to do a good job in many, many places. I think the mindset you bring to Paris shapes your experience to a great degree, and a good challenge for a good traveler is to find a way to enjoy Paris. Thanks, Neil, for your call. All right, thank you. Take care. All right. More with Olivier Manier and the stuff Parisians like in just a moment. I first met Olivier Mani at his popular Au Chateau wine bar in the first district of Paris. And after all my years of enjoying Paris, Olivier helped me to better understand the wines of France. He's also written a bestseller that's a breezy guide to how to live like a Parisian. 
It's recently been translated into English. It's called Stuff Parisians Like. Olivier also writes a blog on occasion called Stuff Parisians Like. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves, and so are you, at 877-333-7425. Allison's on the line in Spokane, Washington. Allison, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Olivier. Hey, I'm wondering if all those thin Parisians are really eating pastries every day from all those pastry shops around Paris, and, and I wonder what color of macaron should I order in my bad, fractured French if I really want to fit in and be uh, cool. Good observations. What about those thin Parisian women who are always munching the macarons? <laughs> it's interesting. It's actually one thing that all Parisians have in common is they all believe they're they are too fat. You know, no matter how skinny they are, they're all too fat. Hmm. So they all go on a diet. They actually don't go there. They just stay on a diet constantly, <laughs> uh, especially women. And, you know, one thing to sort of answer your question, Allison, is whenever I go to the U.S., I'm sort of shocked at how much women eat there. You know, in Paris, most women just have a half of a salad and just claim that they are full, basically. So so their, their little macaroons and little pastries is just the occasional given in. Usually you have a, you know, a low moment, a little blow in your day. You're going to have a little pastry. But I must say that you will not find a whole lot of women eating pastries. They're very conscious about their diet, about what they eat. And so they tend to stay away from uh, bakeries and pastries and all these good, mm-hmm. good things. Olivier, what about exercising? A lot of people who are health conscious in the United States and want to look good in their jeans, uh, they're a member of an athletic club. <laughs> I would say that a good majority of people who jog in Paris are foreigners. You know, like the French don't really exercise much. They basically look down on people who do, to be fully honest. So, um, the the only exception you'll find is Parisians who have spent time in the U.S. and and those basically have realized that it was actually possible to be both smart and in shape. So, which was okay. a revelation for most of them. So, those will jog and they'll usually sport an American sweatshirt or something that say that they're not stupid that they actually went to the U.S. So, something that says NYPD or the logo of a big American university. But it's important for them to say, like, they're not the stupid people who work out. They're the Americanized people who work out. Healthy American lifestyle. Absolutely. Allison, did you find a favorite place to get your macaron? <laughs> no, I just, I'm just so intrigued with it all. It's such a fascinating topic. I'm, may I ask one other quick question about what would you give a Parisian, if you're an American tourist, that you'd like to give a little gift to a casual acquaintance or friend or, or relative or someone you're going to be meeting or... What would they be impressed with and think, hey, that is really neat? Um, let me think. Nothing food-related, because no matter how good the food can be in America, the French still believe that it's disgusting. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't try that. Well, no, actually, a good answer is anything from New York. Like, oh. Parisians are obsessed with New York. <laughs> they all wish they were New Yorkers. They all look up to anything New York. So anything that says New York or that is from New York or a little artist from New York, something under... They they love the word underground and New York. Those two words put together, (laughs) it will make them so happy. (laughs) Allison, thanks a lot for your call. Okay, thank you. Okay, happy travels in Paris. Allison was talking about macarons, which we have to distinguish are different from the coconutty macaroons that, that Americans know a lot of times. Talk to us about this macaron craze in Paris, in La Durée. It's a very old, old uh, pastry, and it's uh, sort of uh, gone through a second win over the past, I would say, 10 years. And indeed, La Durée has become the, the flagship of Macaron, the epitome of it almost. It's actually, it has grown a lot. Like, they open in London, they have a shop in New York. You can actually buy it at Charles de Gaulle's airport. You can buy your La Durée macarons, which is rather un-French. It's like quick expansion. <laughs> so I don't know who is behind this. But mm. yeah, La Durée is really um, something that has become well-known relatively recently to all people in Paris. It could be a classy gift, couldn't it, if you were going to visit somebody in Paris to bring a a little bag of macarons? Well, they have it at home, so I wouldn't know if I would bring it, but it's something that's always um, enjoyed by everybody around having a nice macaron. It's a nice little treat. Just going to the La Durée on on the Champs-Élysées, to me, is a beautiful stop. It is a nice stop. There's also a lovely La Durée on the Rue Royale, which is a street between the Place de la Concorde and the Madeleine. Uh, on the right side, you'll find a lovely La Durée. You can sit there, have a have a little um, chocolat, a little mm. café, and, and some pastries. It's a lovely place, too. The colors are just exquisite on these delicate little pastel macarons. What's your favorite flavor? Yeah. I must say I'm a big chocolate fan. Chocolate macaron. <laughs> All right. There's a lot of trendiness with eating in Paris. If we're heading off to Paris in the near future, what's what's cool these days? 
sushi. <laughs> Believe it or not, sushi is there. There's really to me. There's three dimensions of being cool in Paris. One is owning an iPhone. Two is wearing Converse, and three is eating sushi. <laughs> and you have to eat sushi at least twice a week. I'd say uh, sushi is really huge in Paris. And there's also a very big like sushi delivery market. Like you don't want to cook at home while you're just ordering some sushi. But that being said, I'd say that most sushis that are eaten in Paris are not very good compared to the ones you may eat uh, in the States, for instance. Ironically enough, actually, most sushi restaurants in Paris are owned and operated by Chinese immigrants. A lot of times I'll step into a, a fancy store and I'll see a whole wall of mineral waters. And it's as if Parisians are as crazy about their mineral water as their wine. What's your take on that? <laughs> well, I'd say that Parisians love small luxuries, you know, luxuries that they can afford and luxuries that will separate them from the masses. Like the masses drink tap water, well, maybe they can afford mineral water. It's not that expensive. It's a bit like um like La Durée, for instance. It's not that expensive mm-hmm. to buy macarons, two, three euros. Everybody can afford it. But currently, the, the queen of all mineral waters in Paris is San Pellegrino. The Parisians actually simply refer to it as Sampé, you know, and you go to restaurants say, Un Sampé, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> Un Sampé. Now I'm feeling like a trendy local. Very cool. Un Sampé, <laughs> s'il vous plaît. Voilà. Tourists, it seems to me, just annoy Parisians. And it's a, a funny kind of dynamic because they, they need our money and, uh, you know, they're, they like Woody Allen, uh, but we <laughs> annoy them. What's, what is it about us that annoys Parisians? Paris itself is 2 million people, and I believe there's 26 million tourists in Paris every year. So it's a lot of people, basically, that are tourists in the city. And most Parisians actually do not work with tourists at all. So they don't really realize the impact that they have on the local economy. You know, most right. Parisians work for big companies, corporations, things like So very few actually proportionally work directly and interact directly with tourists. So... Most Parisians believe that there's nothing more degrading than being a tourist in Paris. Like the minute you can be a professor, you can be a lawyer, you can be anybody, the most successful, the smartest person in the world. The minute you step foot in Paris as a tourist, you just become a tourist. You're ah. downgraded. So you're so a Parisian, just, Olivia. What, what is the cliche of an American tourist to you? What, what is the extreme of a tourist? Well, they walk slow, they're loud, they wear sneakers, they they wear dubious colors, they get lost uh, in the metro, they're amazed by every little thing. So, actually, Persians love to imitate uh, American tourists. You know, they have this, this impression, and they just go, oh my God, and then they laugh really loud. It's actually kind of funny. <laughs> so, that's a Parisian uh, mimicking an American? Oh my God. Absolutely. Oh my oh God, God, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting a candid look at um, the stuff Parisians like and the stuff they don't like with Olivier Mani, who's written a book called Stuff Parisians Like. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Eric's on the phone from Hoboken, New Jersey. Eric, thanks for your call. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, I'm a, a kind of a transplant. I, I go between... I was born in America. My mother's French. She lived her life in the U.S., retired back to Paris. So I'm back and forth quite a bit, and I'm highly Americanized. I speak French fairly well. I'm dual citizen, so I kind of have a foot in both countries. And it's always been my dream to buy an apartment in Paris, and I'm not sure if that's a pied-à-terre or if that's really a place I want to move to and try to start a career there. But where I'm looking, I I generally dream of living somewhere in the uh, 11th, the... 10th or the 3rd, kind of off to the east, a little bit out of the main tourist areas. And I just was looking for pointers on how to buy an apartment, thinking like a French Parisian, not an American who's always had a dream of going to Paris, and if that would change my perspective as I look and consider either what I buy or how I buy, how I negotiate, anything that could give me a little insight into uh, having a little more cultural understanding of that process. And Olivier, uh, Eric mentioned a pied-à-terre. What is a pied-à-terre? Pied-à-terre is just having a little place. It's not very big. It's not very fancy, but you can just go there whenever you feel like. So it can be in Paris. It can be in the countryside and on the French Riviera. Just a little place that you you keep for your little uh, getaways. So Eric, I would say my first tip would be make a lot of money (laughs) because... Those apartments are expensive. There's been a crazy inflation when it comes to, well, the euro has generated a lot of inflation and the real estate market has just gone 
absolutely insane in Paris for the past 10, 20 years. Um, so that would be step one. Now, you know, you mentioned the 10th, the 11th. I've actually lived in these neighborhoods. There are nice. It depends really what you want to do with your apartment when you're not there. A lot of Americans who own apartments in Paris rent them out to friends, to tourists. And those neighborhoods that are a bit less central and a bit less glamorous might not be as attractive. So, you know, that's something that you can um, take into consideration. I would say that neighborhoods like Saint-Germain-des-Prés or like the Marais, no Parisian lives there anymore. I would mm. say that probably 80% of these apartments, they're just running out to tourists. So central Paris, and it's a bit sad to witness, is becoming very much like Disneyland. You know, it's nothing very much real anymore. It's a lot of... Uh, tourists and people who deal with tourists so to me it's it's just nice to go there but uh, you hardly hear a French speaker when you go to Saint-Germain-des-Prés so Americans like to stay there in general I would say yeah if you want to have something a bit more authentic in terms of the energy and the creativity of the city aiming for these arrondissements you mentioned the 10th the 11th the 9th is becoming pretty popular as well the third is already anything that's one digit is a bit more fancy um, and a different price point already Olivier, you mentioned in your book that the most desirable address in Paris is the Ile Saint-Louis, but that's also very, very touristy, isn't it? Has that changed? It is extremely touristy, and most Parisians, I would say, dream about having a place on the, the Ile Saint-Louis. Ile Saint-Louis has, it has it all, basically. It's central, but somehow, since it's an island, it's a bit isolated. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. but it's discreet. You know, it's vibrant, but it's quiet. Um, it's really the essence of Paris. To me, it's nest. It's a it's most charming smile I write in the book. It's a beautiful place, but, you know, there's only that many apartments on that island. That's very helpful. It kind of corroborates what I was thinking. And the point about not being able to rent it for much is a good one. But I think that I was thinking that it's a, my strategy is to be a little more authentic. And my mother lives in the 11th at Home Small, and you rarely see tourists. There's not really, except for maybe Perlis has Cemetery, there's not a lot of tourism. So it really feels more authentic. The small shops aren't overrun. It's really not that crush of tourists. It's mostly Parisians, and, and I generally don't go in July or August anyway, so it's it's very nice. So I, I think the, the advice I'm getting is that that might be a, a good place to look. And I know it's expensive, but luckily the euro is tanking right now, so it's a good good time to be looking. You know, I think the tip to keep in mind, is, as Olivier mentioned, is the center is overrun in a lot of cases by tourists, but Paris is a vast place, and uh, you'll pay more to be in the center, and arguably you get less of Paris in the center because you're going to be surrounded by people who have just moved in, and there's a, a lot of arrondissements outside of the center that would be more affordable and give you a more Parisian experience if you're looking for a pied-à-terre. Eric, thanks for your call. Thanks a lot. Thanks okay. both. And Monique's on the phone in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Hi. My question is, um, can you let me in on the secret of how French women and men um, do their scarves? How do they get that sort of, I'm beautiful and I don't even try kind of look? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good Um, description. I know what you're talking about. It's interesting. I I think, you know, when I hear your question, I hear a lot of what Americans project onto the French. Uh, which is a lot of culture, a lot of glamour, a lot of uh, very fancy things that are not always there. You know, Persians, I'd say, they like the romantic glow that comes with wearing a scarf. You know, men think of poetry, women think of uh, untimely elegance. You know, both would like for their scarf to dance with the tormented winds of Paris. I would say it's not as much about how you wear it as it is about how involved you are in your scarf and with your scarf. You really have to have uh, an intention of filling uh, that scarf. Whoa, that sounds pretty philosophical. Olivia, what (laughs) what about jeans? Because the Parisians have a thing about jeans, too. Yeah, jeans are... It's an extremely easy way to tell the age of a Parisian. You know, if your Persian is under 50 years old, always wear jeans. Persians over 50 never do. You know, jeans somehow are associated with, like, freedom. So most Parisians, when they're not at work, well, they wear jeans because they're free. Um, And if their job allows them to wear jeans, well, they sure will be wearing those jeans just basically to show other people how cool their job (laughs) is. Um, (laughs) But one thing, the one little tip, never wear jeans with sneakers in Paris. That's really a big big faux pas there. And Persian women tend to own a lot of pairs of jeans. Like They'll buy a pair of jeans every month, maybe more. So they're extremely concerned about the fit. You know, and the main question you hear all the time is, 
basically does it make my ass look big <laughs> that is the main concern of french women when it comes to jeans men don't really care about the fit i would say some cuts will say a thing or two about your sexual orientation <laughs> wow you could write a whole book on jeans in paris no why not why not <laughs> all right monique thanks for your call Thank you. Thank you, Monique. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Olivier Magny about his new book, Stuff Parisians Like. Olivier's website is o-chateau.com. You can check out his blog there. Olivier, you feel the French are so proud of being French, but at the same time, when you go to France, it strikes me that the men really like foreign women better than French women. What's your take on that? Well, I would say that one of the biggest myths, and that's one I tried to dispel in the book, is that the French... They're not actually proud of France or of being French. Uh, that idea might have been true 30, 40 years ago, but I don't think it's the case anymore. So that's one big myth. Then another huge myth uh, I also tried to dispel in the book is that of La Parisienne. You know, Parisian women's um, main ambition in life is not glamorous, it's not elegant, it's not culture. It is really not to be viewed as a slut. And that has substantial consequences on the way uh, they behave on a daily basis. Persian women, you rarely see them dancing, drinking, laughing sometimes, uh, not much flirting uh, going on. I would say that French women are amongst the most dull and depressing individuals on the planet, Rick. <laughs> okay, so, so then I guess foreign women would uh, be a remedy to that for the Parisian men. Absolutely, you know. Like I, I might, I, that's true. Like you, you listen to my thing. I'm hugely frustrated, and the answer is yes, absolutely. And you would be too if you lived in a city where half of the population is completely anemic. But um, so yeah, Frenchmen who basically have been lucky enough to travel overseas usually end up with foreigners. Um, so basically, my my message to your listeners out there who are women and single is uh, well, you should come to Paris because there's a lot of Frenchmen that are eagerly waiting for you. So, Olivier, uh, how's your romantic life? <laughs> well, I'm no exception. I'm your typical Persian. My wife is American. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about stuff Parisians like, and apparently that might be you. <laughs> <laughs> Olivier Monnier, thanks very much for uh, giving a very candid look at your beautiful but uh, quirky city. Merci beaucoup. Je m'ennuie de toi, mon vieux. On se retrouvera tous les deux, mon grand Paris. If busy Paris wears you out, the French have a perfect remedy for the overstimulated, stressed-out vacations that we Americans often take. How about a few days, maybe even a week, cruising down one of the canals that crisscross the countryside of France? Up next, we explore your options for a relaxed, slow-moving cruise on the inland waterways of France and how it's easier to do than you might expect. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. For the French, a leisurely vacation in the countryside can be the perfect antidote for the stress of modern life. Let's explore how to slow down and relax on the canal barges that slowly work their way across the French countryside on waterways that once served as the transportation corridors of France. Our guides to canal barging in France are Patrick Vidal, who lives in Brittany, and Rebecca Berry, who divides her time between Paris and Egypt when she's not guiding Americans across France. Rebecca and Patrick, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Nice to be Hello. here. Patrick, tell me when you um, are working with a barge tour, what is the typical day for a tourist when they take a barge vacation? By the way, the way it works most of the time, people are coming for around a week and mm -hmm. the, uh, the boat cruises in the morning and it cruises very, very slowly. That's the, as you say, it's not traveling very fast. And uh, in the afternoon, stops somewhere, and there's uh, the bus or a van, depending on the size of the uh, of the barge, depending on the amount of people on the barge, picking them up and taking them to visit a chateau, a market day somewhere, uh, a vineyard, testing some wine, and uh, visiting the countryside. And then maybe a nice dinner somewhere on the boat or in a everything. In a everything happens on the boat. The boat. On got the boat. His own so you chef. go out for your side trip, and the chef is busy cooking on the Absolutely, boat. Absolutely, yeah. There's a there's a chef. It's a it's a floating hotel restaurant. A floating hotel restaurant. That's exactly uh, what it is. Yeah. That's, that explains mm -hmm. it. Uh, that's a barge tour, a fully inclusive barge tour. You got your transportation, your accommodation, 
your meals, your excursions, absolutely, yes. your relaxation. Mm-hmm. How many people on a boat generally? It goes from, uh, I think one of the smallest, more exclusive ones starts at four people. Uh-huh. Goes up to 20, 24. 20 or 24 yes, on a boat. Like That's that. a nice group. Mm-hmm. And I know there's all sorts of different price ranges, but without going into a luxurious cruise, uh, what is a typical the, the range? The range goes from the cheapest, roughly, uh, 3,500 euros a week, all inclusive, without the air. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, on the spot, everything is inclusive. So it's about seven or eight hundred dollars a day. Yeah, something like that. That's yeah, not yeah. inexpensive. That's quite no, that's, expensive. That's not inexpensive. That's for now sure. you yeah. have the option of simply renting a barge. There are three three levels on this uh, barge idea here. We got the, we got the one we're talking about, which is the you rent a, a bunk or a bedroom right. uh, like like you were in a hotel somewhere, or you can also rent a little boat that you're going to uh, pilot yourself. Now that would be like renting a camper van. Yeah, or yeah absolutely. Like it's this. a floating RV. That's a floating uh, RV, uh, well, well, very nice. Uh, now, that would be a lot uh, less expensive. That's much less expensive. Yeah, that comes to, uh, depending on the amount of people on the boat, it goes from 1000 to 2000 a week uh, without the food. But, so that's uh, more like $200, $250 a day. And that's not by person. Right, that's for the whole group. That's for the whole group. So you got four people on a barge. Most barges could accommodate two couples. Yes. And that's no more expensive than hotels. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. for the cost of a normal hotel, you're getting your floating hotel, and, and your transportation and, and a beautiful experience. And you've got a little kitchen, you've got uh, everything is uh, included. So, Rebecca Berry, we have these two options. You've got the inclusive tour package that Patrick was talking about. And maybe you just wanted to rent a little barge uh, for four, let's say, mm-hmm. and go on your own adventure. How would you do that? How challenging is that? Is it realistic for an American to figure this out? Sure. In different cities, uh, in the port, along the way, along the canals or along the river systems, there are ports that will um, advertise that you can rent your own little peniche, sometimes called a penichette. And quite often, the people that are running these little self-hire offices, are they're all English-speaking. Okay. Um, the big boats, to navigate, you uh, are required to have a, a license. So the yeah. pilot is hired, and he's part of the crew, and he has a special license to take the penichette. It's self-hire, self-drive. Yeah. You don't need a special license. Now, I've been on both, and, and the, the big barge that would accommodate 15, 20 people is, is like a little mini cruise ship almost. You'd have to have a professional crew. But I've also been on the little peniche, you call it? Or penichette. Penichette. And it's almost like bowling when you have uh, the bumpers in the lane so you can't do a gutter ball. I mean, it's just you're just going one way down the canal. You, it's hard to screw up. It's hard. And if you do, you just have a little bump and you, you know, toodle along a little... No damage. They're made of plexiglass. Oh, they are? Okay. So there's... Uh, you don't need to be a mariner to do this. You just kind of bounce, yeah. Yeah, that's fun. And tell us about coming a- upon a lock, because that's an integral part of the whole experience, is going through these very pastoral, sleepy locks. When you come into a lock with a self-hire, it, the boats are much more narrow than the um, professional boats, the ones that are so pricey. Plenty of room. you either going in and closing the doors behind, and the lock will fill up with water, and you, you're raising up, you're going up along in the countryside, or you're emptying out. So it takes about 15 minutes or so for the... It's like being in a little bathtub, actually. You're either That's filling right. up. So you fill up the bathtub or let out the bathtub. Voila. So basically, to get the big picture, I guess you could take a barge from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic yeah. and stay in France. And it goes up and up and up, and then it does the continental divide, and then down and down and down. And in order to gain altitude or lose altitude, you hit these locks... You navigate your little boat inside, close off the door, fill it up with water, it raises you, and then open the other door, and you're on your way. Exactly. Do you have to make an appointment for this? No. You have to take turns, though. So you line up, and maybe on peak time, you'd have a little bit of a wait. Mm -hmm. Is there any exercise involved, Patrick? They they can be on some of them, different types of of locks. Some of them are automatic. You just have a little light coming, uh, a little, um, how do you call that, a uh, red thing. In that so you're just sipping your glass of wine and it uh, does all the it's, work. It's kind of, it's reading the fact that you're coming, opening the door, and uh, you get in, and the, the water comes on its own. And it's, I it's, like it's the warm. hard work one. Yeah. Tell us about the one oh, where there you are the, the It's much more interesting. Tell you, us about how that you is. You get in, and then you make sure that one of your crew gets out of the boat straight away and uh, comes on the side of the thing, because you've got the lock keeper, but yeah. he can do one door at a time only. So uh, uh, The lock keeper needs an assistant. Absolutely. Okay. So you come out. You help the lockkeeper to shut the doors, and if the lockkeeper is a bit lazy because you know it could be just after lunch, he could be a, <laughs> a bit on the sleepy side, uh, nappy side of his uh, of his afternoon. You give him a hand to open the vans to get the water in as well, and it's so a uh, good exercise for your arms, definitely. Tell us about this lockkeeper culture. Who who are the people that live in the cottages on the locks, and what are they like? It's very interesting. It's one of those jobs after the First World War, which have been reserved for widows of the First World War. Because so many men died during the First World War, 
I mean, something like uh, 50% of the men between 15 and 35 years old died during the First World War. So uh, a lot of jobs were, were secured for widows. Let's think about that for a moment first, because I've heard this, this statistic before, and it is just mind-blowing from an American point of view or from, uh, from anybody's point of view, that half of all the men... Between, Between 15, 15 and 30 feet. were casualties after World War I. Absolutely. That would devastate the society. And then you've got this glut of women who have no mm-hmm. partner and who are looking for work, and the government found work for them. And that's the heritage now, is these widows would be running... You know, the... about those people, with uh, so many people died during the First World War. Those graphic of pyramid of ages that you can find in, in books around, and the one from France from this period is completely tilted. Because normally you go to a certain amount of young people and, uh, you know, That's the pyramid right, yeah. goes, uh, goes uh, pointed with the older well, one with the older top, people, which, yeah. uh, which are less. And there, there's a big gap in this pyramid. So the pyramid so, of the age groups in France of living yeah, people has a big gap in yeah, it there's that a, goes there's a right place up where the pyramid. They didn't have much of a base. So today, who is running these canals? Are there still interesting st- characters? You can still find, yeah, there's still uh, uh, descendants. Of descendants the, of uh, yeah, these absolutely. widows. Absolutely. A lot of those locks have been kept for the, the widows and the, uh, the daughter. Very often... It's a job which doesn't require a lot of uh, of, of work. University training, yeah, <laughs> no, it's an easy lot job. of training. Uh, you can stay at home, and and it's not big money. So right. so it's in the French life, culture, yeah. it's been accepted as a as a woman's job. If I may say, I, I don't want to be derogative on that, but uh, as just as a, as a secondary job. There's one of them, one of the family member who's got a job outside and makes a bit more money. Yeah. And the second one, because you got a free house with it as well. So you live in the cottage you on live, the lock. You live on the lock. And are these a, a heritage of the industrial age then? It was part of the industry to have these Nine, 19th century, that's when they really built those locks those, and those systems. In fact, it was a very unfortunate time because they built it in the 40s, 50s. And a few days later came the train. Ah, oh, that was so bad they, timing. They, wasn't they it? Very, very, the timing was atrocious. A big investment to dig all these it canals. It was enormous. Yeah. And then the canals were more efficient than a carriage on a road. For 20 years. But then you have train, the train trains comes in on, on and it just uh, takes iron over. rails. Mm. And it just takes over. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Rebecca Berry and Patrick Vidal. We're talking about exploring France by canal. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Diana's on the line from Friday Harbor in Washington. Diana, thanks for your call. Thank you so much, Rick. And thank you, Rebecca and Patrick. Um, This is fascinating to me. My daughter and I will be going to France in April. um, And I'm particularly interested in the self-guided barge tour, the, uh, was it Pinochette that Patrick said? And so I'm looking at what may be an appropriate itinerary. Um, If we did do a self-guided tour, how many people we would need? Would we combine with other people if there were just two of us? And maybe a a week-long to a 10-day itinerary. We'd be flying into Paris, but we'd have to get to someplace wherever it might be starting. So I'd love to know more about it. So, Rebecca, Diana has about seven or ten days. First of all, in France, what are the, the most popular canals to, uh, to use? The Canal de Bourgogne is very popular, and that's the canal that, that I know the best. And that's in Burgundy. So yeah, that in the Burgundy be, uh, region. Just, uh, yeah, southeast, yeah. Bon oh, Dijon. Dijon. From Paris, you'd go a couple hours to the east by train. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the Canal de Midi is very, very popular as well. A little more, and since it is so popular, the travel is a little bit slower. There are more boats uh, traveling. So the congestion would slow things down. Yeah, and that's a in an entirely different part of France. That's down in the south down by the Carcassonne. South. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. The Nivernais, the Canal de Nivernais, is also in Burgundy area, south of a town called Auxerre, spelled A U X E R R E. And it's different. They're all quite different. The Canal de Nivernais, I would call it, it's very wooded, and you're really cutting through the countryside. It's particularly beautiful. Hmm. So those are three major canals that that probably are the lion's share of the canal traffic for recreational barging. There are others. Um, you can certainly cruise on the on the river, but it's much for me. I prefer the canal. The pace is slower. You can get off, mm-hmm. walk between, oh, yeah. that's the take whole, a bicycle. That's the essence of uh, canaling. Is, you know, just pull over on the side, pull a line out, and get a bottle of wine and sit on the front deck. And it's just the pace is so much more enjoyable. And we talked about April, so uh, the south would be a good one. Mm. The Canal du Midi would be a good one because yeah. in the spring, okay. yeah. yeah, because it's not too hot yet. It's not too busy, yeah. and uh, and you you might have better weather, weather mm. in the south than yeah. Burgundy. Oh, and, uh, so the spring or the fall, you could go down to the Canal du Midi in the summer. Maybe still in manageable, and yeah. yeah, it's kind of the the famous ones, the Midi and the Burgundy. Are there other canals in France that are popular? 
There's quite a few. Uh, there's quite a few little ones that are not very known or right. around the place, which are not very. very but most used. of the industry is in those two areas. Mm. Absolutely, we. Oui. The the fact is, in Burgundy, you've got I can't remember how many kilometers of, of canals you've got just around Burgundy. You, you can go all over the place in Burgundy. Canal du Centre. You can go on the rivers as well, like the Saône. You can really, really travel around a lot in Burgundy just by hitting the water. Uh, the, the Canal du Midi is more about reaching the Rhone River to the Garonne, which links to the uh, Atlantic Ocean. And uh, it's it's a one-way system when in Burgundy you can really play around. So if you had one week, you're not really necessarily going anywhere. You are just, you're not going you, to go very far. You're being way. someplace. Yes. But you're not, it's not like, this is how we're going to Barcelona. <laughs> no, you're, no. Just, you're just being in Burgundy. Absolutely. And uh, if you are with your... Rebecca, what is the name again for the independent? The self-hire or uh, a penichette. Uh, the penichette. If you're on a penichette, you could have the same routine that Patrick was talking about with the fully guided barge. You could go in the morning. You could just tie it up somewhere. You could have your bicycle or take a exactly. walk sure. and come back. You yeah. could actually get out and let your other people in your party continue barging, and you could meet them down at the next village. Yep. It's very difficult to lose a boat on the canal. <laughs> They're very, very narrow. And uh, you usually, if you're walking at a brisk pace, you're going to be at the lock before the boat. You can get out and walk. And there's probably towpaths along. Towpaths along the way. Just the because, yeah, they would have had uh, donkeys pulling in the 19th century. And, and now you have your spouse pull the, pull the barge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're, you're joking, but it's absolutely right. The story says, oh, they had horses to pull to pull the boats, but the horses were too expensive. They were using too much food, and they were taking too much place on the boat. So, so the man was steering, and the rest of the family was pulling. Yo ho he ho! <laughs> That's the Volga boat That's song, right? Volga boat song. So you can have the Burgundy boat song too. Yes. <laughs> Diane, I hope that gives you some good ideas. That's wonderful, Rick. Thanks so much. Thanks for the call. Thank you too, Patrick and Rebecca. Pleasure. Bye bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking barging in France. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Gary's on the line in Post Falls, Idaho. Gary, thanks for your call. No, thanks, Rick. Hey, my wife and I have considered the, the barging trip, and but we'll both like to bicycle as well. So it kind of narrows your choice down to having a, a guided tour. And to do that and be able to ride along the canals, what can one expect by taking a guided tour on the barge? What level of service, or I mean, just what can you expect on, on, a, on a guided tour? Rebecca worked on, a, on the boats for eight years. What kind of service do people uh, expect when they hire onto one of these fully uh, guided excursions? Um, they're all quite comfortable. Obviously, the, uh, the more expensive are the, the quality of the service, the quality of the food, it's gastronomic, your wines that you're drinking are you know, the finest burgundies and bordeaux that you can get. It's a really a white-glove production or you can have a more, you know, a little bit simpler. Uh, but however, there's always a guide on board. The cruise consists of there's always a chef in the kitchen. There's the pilot, a deckhand, someone who is uh, taking care of the excursions and driving the van, and some cabin girls or stewardesses that are taking care of the table service and service in the cabins. The guide will take you up to, and just kind of sometimes you'll need to have a visit translated, so the guide will make sure that, that that's done. Just driving and getting you from A to B. And, and do you have plenty of time to bicycle to different villages and, and then just meet the barge somewhere up the, up the canal? Sure, that's possible. Um, so you would always have the option of skipping out of the excursion, and, and they probably have a bike on the boat. Yeah, well, yeah the bo- there are bicycles on all the boats. Yeah. Most, of, most of the boats provide bicycles. Yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful ratio of uh, staff to customers, you know. You have 20, 25 people, yeah. and you've got this staff of, of six or eight. Six or seven, yeah. yeah. If you speak English, are there English-language excursions, or would you be in a French excursion? No, it's uh, m- most of those companies are run by, by uh, English-speaking people. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Most of the clients mm. are English-speaking. So, What would the downside of being with 20 people on a barge? It sounds like there's a lot of advantages. You know, you'd have an interesting convivial sort of social circle. You'd have enough people to uh, merit having a great chef and, and really nice cooking. What is the downside of having 20 people on a boat? You're a bit away from real life. You're not really, you're not really discovering the culture of the place. You know, that's true. You have your own luxurious bubble. Absolutely. Mm. Exactly. That's, that's a good uh, wording for that. It's very nice. It's very, it's, the pace is fascinating. But you lack the little cultural touch that you would have on a tour, yeah. running around and bumping into people. You are taking from one place. You visit one place. Your visit is translated. You never go really. You have to find your own things on your own, anything like that. It's very, very nice, but it's... It's not yeah, reality. It's, uh, you know, yeah. it's not reality. I've got no problem 
I'm generally interested in reality, but when it comes to a barge, I've got no problem with this luxurious bubble. I did it one day, and I'll tell you, it was a luxurious barge <laughs> trip, and I, I was so charmed and uh, tempted and uh, just in love with the whole experience. And the, the sunflower fields were going by. We were sipping great wine. It was just we made friends with the crew. It was so smooth and gentle. Mm. I loved it. Yeah, it's very relaxing. It does sound like you have the opportunity to enjoy both worlds by from time to time just wandering off into some village somewhere and get lost for a half a day and then sure. finding, finding your way back to the canal and the, and the barge. And then when you're done, you can stay in some small town and really uh, you know, do your, your more reality experience travel. Uh-huh. Okay, Gary, thanks so much for your call. I hope that helps out. Okay, thanks a lot, Rick. Have a good day. Happy travels. Bye-bye. We've been barging through France with the help of Rebecca Berry and Patrick Vidal. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Pete in Bloomington, Illinois, emailed us, and Pete writes, We took a barge cruise for our 30th anniversary. It was the most relaxing vacation. Very slow-paced. I even was left behind at one village and was able to walk to the next lock and get back on the boat with no problem at all. Only three other couples were on board, and we all clicked. It's the best way to see the France that not many other people actually get to see. That's a pretty good testimony for barging. Yeah. Yes, it is. That's the way it goes. And it, it's a good description of it. Relax, uh, slow pace. When you analyze it from a budget point of view, when you consider this is an all-exclusive vacation, you're not renting a car, you're not paying for hotels, you're not wondering where your meal is going to be. If it's a good barge, you've got good accommodations and good meals. Yeah, you know what you're paying for. I mean, and you're seeing France from the backside, through the backyard of France. You're right. When Every time you get somewhere, you don't get through the main drive or the main street in the town. You go from behind the village or behind the town a little bit, and it's, it's something very interesting. If you want idyllic and if you want France and if you want quiet and peaceful, no hey, traffic noise, we are. Yep. there you go. Patrick Vidal, Rebecca Berry, exploring France by canal. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at WWNO in New Orleans and to Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, and Matt Iglesias for their help. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find program extras and details about each week's show behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.